welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Investing Power Hour number 56. My name is Brett Schaefer, and I'm joined, as always, by Ryan Henderson. On these episodes, we talk about whatever we want in the financial markets, investing, business news, whatever. It might uh, spear off into a succession discussion right now for a few minutes if we ever get to that. But we got a lot of, a lot of topics this week. We have new news on the banking panic, which Ryan will cover There is lots of earnings. I'm not sure which ones we're going to talk about in detail, but we are going to talk about some. There are a lot of fun companies to cover this week. I have the Microsoft Activision Blizzard news, uh, and then some interesting charts about housing and excess savings in the economy, if we can get to them. Uh, Ryan, how are you doing? How are things earnings season-wise? Disappointing to see the Activision Blizzard news, but maybe we'll hit that later. Yeah, it was it was disappointing. It sounds like it maybe um, still isn't over. Um, the controversy continues, but it certainly uh, prolongs the acquisition period. Which, if you're in the merger arb space, um, or or if you're 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 buying anything because you think the acquisition will occur. The longer that it takes, the worse off you are in terms of rate of return. So, a um, little disappointing, but we'll, we'll uh, talk about we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Uh, earnings season has been fun though. It's 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 been all right. I feel like there's always way more anticipation than what the results bring. Like everyone's like, "This is a make or break quarter." Seems like they say that every quarter. Yeah. Um, and then the results are always just a mixed bag and. Uh, kind of a continu- continuation of the same stuff that's been happening before. Yep. And it's interesting to see what narratives get built from the current earnings period. It seems like there's always a few narratives that get attached and then people run with it for a few quarter or a few months until the next earnings season. And then we see if it's actually a su- surviving trend or just the narrative that's driving price in the short run. We got uh, we got Rod Alsman in the chat. What is he Former guest. Just yeah, go listen to Go listen to his episode on, I forget the exact company name because it's so niche, but it is the the engine company for trucks, uh, semi-trucks and, or not even engine, it's uh, transmission. It? transmission, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think it's called Allison Transmission Holdings. Yeah, been around for a hundred years. If Very Rod's, fascinating. If fascinating Rod's gonna listening, he's going to be, he's going to be rolling his eyes, but yeah, I think it is. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, like kind of, most people probably are unfamiliar with it. So go ahead, check it out. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get to this episode, we need to talk about our sponsor and that is stratosphere.io. It is our investing home screen for fundamental research. It has key KPIs for their premium plans. They are launching stuff that that they're integrating chat GPT, although they just did that, which I would just go check it out. So you can get on their wait list there. Let me share my screen. Oh yeah. You want to share something? I had something to share, but let me... You know, and I was I was listening to ourselves this week. All right. Yeah, on the podcast. I gotta say, it partly irritates me when we share stuff 
work for the people that just listening. So we've got to make sure we like very clearly describe it. All right. Well, go ahead and share it and I will and test me and I'll describe it. Okay. Well, oh, wow. You used First Republic as well. I had that loaded up. Uh, It is a chart of First Republic. Well, we have the share price, which looks like not great. Uh, but now Ryan's going through their owner or their their liabilities and asset table on on Stratosphere, which is nice and clean and very easy to integrate with. He's looking at total liabilities, total debt, net debt, all the stuff that they aggregate for you and make it super easy to start really, uh, I don't know, a re- the research on a company. You don't have to go through the SEC filings. You can read stuff that's actually readable instead of the the filings that people put through and let's see what he got here total average deposits well things look pretty good for first republic compound and growth rate of total average deposits of 21 percent for since uh it was through the end of 2022 but then in q1 everything just fell off a cliff so uh you know not one kpi makes or breaks a company but yeah they have these interesting kpis for companies like stratosphere or excuse me like first republic on stratosphere that you won't find anywhere else at least not for the price of either free or the smaller price that they offer uh to which is great for individuals or professional investors so go ahead check them out stratosphere.io use our code ccm get 15 percent off and tell them we sent you link is in the show notes okay ryan let's get to the topics for today any comments first or no just rod saying hi Sorry, I was on mute there. Yeah, we do have another comment. Ben Cohn resigns. I, I had no idea who that was. That is the uh, CEO of Playboy Enterprises. Um, uh, one of our one of the people in the chat, Matthias, says uh, he'll he'll do his part. He'll step in. Yeah, they're gonna have tough tough time filling that position. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So the, I don't know. It's been a super busy week. So probably tons to get to. I, should we start with the most interesting? Maybe the banking panic continues. Yeah, I think. Yeah, go ahead. You had some notes on there. You did uh, jinx it a little bit last week. Although totally. I don't, I don't know if this still might not be a full blown panic. But at least First Republic seems like it's still pretty much dead. But why don't you go through the details? Yeah, I probably should have thought out the fact that. Right after I said the banking panic was over, earnings came out in a week, and it was. I mean, there were companies where we certainly didn't know how bad the problem was, um, or we didn't know what had happened to deposits because it hadn't been publicly disclosed. And then this quarter, we saw, and well, First Republic was one of those. Um, so First Republic, I, I guess I, I'm not that familiar with the business, um, or I wasn't prior. To kind of what's been going on, um, a lot of investors that I respect were invested there. They said the the customer service was incredible. Um, kind of would always go one step beyond to to make their customers kind of feel welcome. However, um, it seems like they fell into pretty much a similar trap to Silicon Valley Bank, where they had a number of health and maturity assets. Um, and those assets, you don't want to have to mark down because then you get in trouble and, and earnings look horrible. And then so any sort of deposit outflows, you start to have this risk. And uh, after the Silicon Valley banking crisis, um, a lot of investors and I think depositors were um, 
concerned that the same thing could happen to First Republic, and that fear tends to lead to withdrawals, and that's exactly what happened. So I guess just for context, I, I don't have the number right in front of me, but deposits, they said the deposits were only down, I think it was like 30 or 40%, but that included a $30 billion oh basically. I know. I mean, that's not great either. Um, it included a $30 billion rescue fund essentially from the big banks. Um, in that deposit accounts for, I mean, I guess those are technically deposits, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's a rescue fund. So if you exclude that, uh, deposits were down, I want to say 60% in a single quarter, roughly. Um, so obviously that kind of leads to more concerns for anybody that's left. That's a depositor that's looking at these results. Um, and basically, I mean, there was a lot of writing about it. Um, it's still kind of in limbo right now as to what exactly is going to happen, but can we just end it? Let's just, let's just put them in, give them to someone for zero. Well, I think it's better to have, so here's what's happening. Um, and there's reporting from, uh, CNBC on this and they said advisors to first Republic will attempt to cajole, um, not that's kind of my first use of that term. Uh, <laughs> cajole the big U.S. banks who've already propped it up into doing one more favor. The pitch will go something like this. Purchase bonds from First Republic at above market rates for a total loss of a few billion dollars or face roughly $30 billion in FDIC fees when First Republic fails. Essentially, um, so I, I've got another quote here from um, – Matt Levine that kind of highlights what would happen if they just let the bank fail. So it says, he says, roughly speaking, if some banks fail, the FDIC is a mutual aid program and the other banks join in to bear the loss. But if there's a full-blown systemic panic crisis, systemic banking crisis, and lots of banks fail, the FDIC is a government guarantee and taxpayers save the banks. Essentially, it would also have I'll I'll read another quote. The specific mechanics of the FDIC insurance fund create another argument. If you let bank X fail, that will cost the FDIC money and the FDIC will just send you a bill for that money. So you might as well bail out bank X yourself first. Essentially, they're going to be left carrying the bag anyways. So if they're able to kind of prop it up by buying these bonds, um, it might not solve the entire problem. There might still be kind of withdrawals and uh, deposit, deposit outflows, but they said if they can get the $30 billion from uh, these other banks, essentially uh, taking a loss, it's going to lead uh, some of the other kind of third parties that were interested in helping give some money said they would they would also pitch in. So basically, they're waiting for the big banks to step in, and then they'll add some capital, these third parties, once they have a better sense that First Republic's not going to go down. The thing is, it seems... It seems like every time there's a banking crisis, they they give like a half response that isn't enough, and then they have to give a full response. Where if you just do a, a like kind of a if you give them more capital be, capital to begin with, it probably stops it in its tracks. So it seems like I don't know. They I mean, could be hindsight twenty twenty there. Yeah, because if you if you give them enough, then it doesn't become a crisis, and you forget about it. But you remember the ones that become an issue and have to someone you have to double down on. Yeah, I, I, get, I get your point. People were referenced. Oh wait, yeah. yeah. But um, there's other situations, right? Where yeah, that's true. It's 
it sounds like, I mean, if I'm a depositor at First Republic and I knew about this, I'd probably, I mean, frankly, and I know I'd be contributing to the problem, I'd probably take my money out. Um, but it sounds like they're going to get funded by these other banks in one way or another. Either the FDIC is going to foot the bill and then give it back to the make the other big banks pay fees, or they're just going to get sort of a buyout package or a rescue package from the other banks. So I guess the banking panic isn't over. It still continues. And I should have thought about this earlier, but it's not necessarily, I don't think this is going to have a trickle on effect. I don't think other banks are going to see this. I don't think other other depositors. Yeah. I don't think other depositors will pull their money out of their bank just because of first Republic or whatever. But what I, do think is possible is that these banks that have long dated held the maturity assets continue to report concerning earnings numbers. And that might lead to anyone who's following the bank's earnings to say, oh, okay, I've got some uninsured deposits. Why don't I take some kind of risk off here? Maybe, maybe. It seems much, much, much smaller than 08, at least right now, right? Like it, this is not even comparable to the size of the 08 crisis. So I just don't see it. And, and, and to be honest, when deposits leave, it helps unless people are putting money, money under the mattress or in Bitcoin or gold or wherever, it's going into other banks. So I think on a whole, it's it's almost just circular and everything's fine. Uh, the banks might not earn as much as they would if if they're getting caught with their net interest margins compressing, but, but you know what interesting is- to follow. I mean, some of these banks might be in, in big trouble if people start panicking even more, but it's in the real world, the story seems to have ended outside of the investing people who follow the investing news, financial news, business news. Yeah. And the big banks, are, I think the big banks are in an interesting spot because they probably aren't going to have to raise their, uh, whatever their savings account yield because no one really, I don't know, no one gives a shit, frankly. Like if you have your money in a Chase account, are you really putting it there for the savings rate? Like, are, are you doing it because you want to earn money on it or would you just move your money out of there? So I think they can continue to hold a really low savings yield and earn more on their assets and basically widen their net interest margin while a lot of these other banks like Ally or any of the high yield savings account might attract more deposits, but they might have that net interest margin compression, at least over the next year or two. Here's what Rod commented. He said, an issue is the flow into money market funds and out of the banking system. Yeah. I'm going to kind of push back on you on the the keeping money in the checkings accounts with low interest rates is that it's very easy. And yeah, it's not going to be like, boom, overnight, half the people are going to say, I'm going to put something in a, uh, what do they call them? C- uh, CDs uh, or money market fund, something that yields 4% or higher or whatever the rate is right now. And I think that is just going to steadily happen. It might not, it's just going to be a trickle, but the higher rates stay this long, they're going to eventually have to raise rates. But compared to someone like, you know, their, their loan book will eventually follow suit, right? They're not going to have to do it immediately. So I think, you know, everything will be fine. We're seeing it, a bank we cover don't own right now, but follow it pretty closely. Have it on the watch list is Ally Financial. They're kind of in the middle ground where they don't have any FDIC or excuse me, uninsured deposit issues. But like 10%. Yeah, 10% very, very low. Yeah, very low. So there's not a concern that they're going to go through a panic and they're growing their deposit base, but they're seeing major net interest margin compression as some people go, for, they have to pay out more on their deposits 
and they've had to raise their interest rates quicker or they've chose to do that uh, just because they don't have the advantages of the big banks and their people are moving into CDs and, and money market funds. But eventually their loan book is the um, it has higher interest rates as well. So that net, the net interest margin they're earning is going to even out over time. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I probably should have mentioned it, but depo- the big banks will earn more on their deposits, but it's probably quite likely that deposits will decrease on a per, um, like on a per you, customer basis. Deposits, what do you mean? Depo- like literal deposits? Or you mean so like if I'm a customer, so they don't have to raise their savings rate because people probably aren't really going there for that. And, and we've seen a net interest margin expanded for Bank of America and I think at JP Morgan as well, where they don't have to increase their savings rate, which might, might push some kind of, let's call it 10% of a customer's money to money market funds, but they're always going to have a certain percentage in their savings accounts or in their checking accounts. And Bank of America, JP Morgan, all the big banks are going to be earning more on that because they're going to be getting a better yield on their loans. So I guess it's kind of a push and take, but we've seen, I think, net interest revenue at Bank of America was up like 30% or something like that. Um, I think it's the ones where maybe you don't use them as your primary bank, where there may be more deposit outflows. Um, and I don't know what Schwab's case is, if that's like the primary bank for a lot of people, but Schwab saw 30% of deposits decrease year over year. So, And move uh, into, they're not necessarily leaving Schwab, but moving into a different- Yeah, asset. more of an, somewhere where they can earn more money. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting where some of the bank, not all banks are created equal. We did have, you know, I, I mentioned that this is way out of the, um, it's, it's not in the mainstream news anymore, which is a good thing because you don't, you know, a banking crisis can kind of cause itself if everyone thinks there's a banking crisis. But he said the, this is, this is Matthias, this is a little bit of a, you're making fun of your friends here, but the plebes in my life, which is meaning I think non-finance folks have moved on from sending me doom articles about the banking crisis, and they now send articles about the imminent collapse of the U.S. dollar reserve status. That hey, peso that is true. on the rise. <laughs> the, the Mexican peso. Yeah. We're gonna have a. Let's just. I want them to make a global peso, or excuse me, a, a peso that's <laughs> all of South America. It's just too confusing, and it would be so much easier. But I don't know anything about that issue. But I I threw out a. There was something I was listening to about that, and again, total idiots about foreign currencies and reserves and stuff like that. But uh, there, there was something that made me think of this idea where, let's say, Ryan, you have two choices. One, and I tweet out this poll if anyone wants to vote on it. Uh, first one is you can buy a South African 10-year treasury in South African whatever dollars, whatever they call it, yielding 10%. But it's 10 years, right? Or you can buy a U.S. ten-year Treasury, yielding five percent. What do you choose? I'll take the I'll take the U.S. Treasury, and I yeah. I think you could have used a lot of examples. It's nothing against South Africa. It, yeah, it's, it's part it's of that's not also specifically that South. I Africa, just yeah. know the market. I mean, I just under, under have a better understanding of the U.S.'s current situation. The thing that I will say is, people talk about the U.S. dollar losing its reserve status. I bet that's been talked about for 150 years. Well, uh, Ryan, it hasn't. Uh, or sorry. Since, <laughs> since, it, since it became a reserve after World War I. Yeah. Or two. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
remember when we went off the gold standard and everyone said the same thing? I mean, not, not remember like remember when we were there, but remember all the talk about it. Yeah, yeah, reading about that and stuff. Uh, but I mean, it can change, right? I, I think you really, you know, the the British British was the reserve currency or whatever it was, the pound for a while, and before that, I guess there really wasn't one for a long time before there was true globalization happening. But I think you have to believe, and yeah, we're, believe we're someone, talking. We're talking at yeah. kind of above our pay grade here, but I think you have to believe that American productivity and influence in the world is going to shrink. Yeah, if, to if that is your belief, a, then yeah, bet on it, I guess. A, yeah, you have to believe that. Yeah, there's going to be a uh, another superpower that takes over something like that. But yeah, the the U.S. reserve status just because someone bought some oil and didn't go through the U.S. dollar. I mean. That's fine. I, that's probably a fair question. You know, it's a fair question for them to ask if they want to do that. They can, right? It's not, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think Dalio's been all over this too. Oh, Dalio, he like, loves. Well, he, I, I, I gotta say, he has some ties to China that he may be getting some funds from over there. So I, I don't know. He might be slightly biased, <laughs> but he does talk about the collapse of the economy. And I just don't like that because that's almost again, self-fulfilling prophecy. I just, I just hate that stuff. Right. Where you, you have so much influence and you're like the global co- economy is going to collapse. And I, yeah, if you're, yeah, look, I, I just don't like that talk. I mean, right? he's also, uh, yeah, I don't know. I read his like, or I maybe got like halfway through his principles book, which was like one of the most boring reads on earth. But yeah. the other, he is a little hypocritical, and oh. I, I don't agree with everything he's done. But yeah, but he could be to- he could be totally right, and he obviously has fifty something years of experience, right, as an investor. So yeah. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. All right, um, let's do another. Yeah, let's do another topic because U.S. dollar reserve status is we'll just, talk Activision. Yeah, it, it's just astrology. Is uh, uh as one of our com- commenters said, yeah, let's talk Activision as something more concrete. Pretty easy uh, to see what happened here. Uh, if anyone that hasn't got caught up with the news, so the United Kingdom, there, the it's called something. The CMA is the acronym, but it's basically the FTC for the United Kingdom. I forget what it actually stands for. They blocked the deal for Microsoft to acquire Activision Blizzard because they believe the deal would hinder competition in the cloud gaming space, which they claimed is going to grow rapidly to around 11 billion British pounds of global annual spending by 2026. Full disclosure here, we do own shares of Activision Blizzard at this time, so we'll try to be, we might sound a little biased because we do think the deal should have gone through, but again, don't feel sorry for us or anything. It wasn't, you know, these aren't huge swings in Losing fifty percent of value of a position or something like that, uh, and yeah, they, they, that's really all that happened. Shares of Activision Blizzard fell ten percent on the news, kind of back to where they were a couple months ago, and that's it. The, obviously, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard said that the deal should go through, which you would expect them to. They're pretty, I think, harsh, threatening the United Kingdom essentially, saying that they're the. If you kind of saw some of those notes, um, but yeah, what, uh, what was that? They they're threatening basically saying they're threatening that you know the United Kingdom is bad for business. The United Kingdom is a bad place for mergers. It's the worst place in Europe for a technology company to go. They're they're saying all this, you know, trying to talk their book and stuff like that about how the CMA doesn't understand things. They were being, they basically were saying that, uh, they they honestly sounded like a tech uh, startup person or a or a Bitcoin person where they say you just don't get it, bro. You know, 
where they, they essentially said, and I think I honestly agree with them. We can talk about that, that the they said that the CMA and the FTC do not understand the video game market. But discussion question, what do we think of the decision here? Did the CMA get it right or wrong? Ryan, why don't you go first and then I'll have my thoughts. I think they got it wrong. Um, and you, you threw out one of the big stats, which is the, the big concern here was over cloud gaming, which really isn't even a market yet. I mean, it's not even a market. And they cited one of their reasons for, yeah, I mean, here's, okay. Uh, for everyone listening, Brett is showing a chart right now on the gaming market. And there's concerns that um, Microsoft could be a monopoly if they gobbled up Activision. And one of the big concerns there was because of the cloud gaming market, which we think it will grow. But if, if you look at this chart, Today, the gaming market, I think this is from 2020, is estimated at $165 billion. Uh, and 2022, it's about $200 billion, give or take. And what would you say, uh, what, what percentage do you think is made up of cloud revenue? 1%? It, maybe it's, less? It's, it's much less than 1%, probably less than half a percent. If we look at the numbers here, of that $165 billion, we have $85 billion in mobile, $40 billion in PC, $33 billion in console. So... I think the key takeaway I have from it, and this is more of someone who is very interested in the gaming market and is trying to become you know, knowledgeable about the space, and I think we are fairly knowledgeable about this industry, is you want to, uh, you know, they, they wanted to increase competition within cloud gaming, which is not even, no one's really even figured it out. Microsoft has a product and no one else is really trying because the technology isn't there. So they want to increase competition in that, which is a fake market that no one knows is gonna what is even gonna look like five years from now. It's like doing you know competition stuff within the metaverse market. Um, but they're gonna decrease competition in the mobile market, which is eighty five billion dollars, because now you're not gonna let the Xbox Store really have a chance to compete with a content offering versus Google or Apple. You're gonna decrease competition within the PC market and entrench Steam. And, and maybe a little bit of uh, Epic Games as the dominant platforms in PC. And then you're going to entrench PlayStation as the dominant platform in console. And then I guess you have Nintendo, but they don't really compete with anyone. So yeah, that's that's my takeaway. Since you're gonna, it, and PC and console are both around $40 billion a year. So just so much money, so much consumer spending. And now you're just going to entrench these other players and not let Xbox try to increase competition in some of these other places for cloud gaming. It's just... I saw all the people that cover the markets for you know newspapers and stuff like that just laughing. They're like, well, "What what is going on here?" Yeah, I mean, it, it is laughable. They cited that they cited one of the reasons that they don't think the deal should go through is because they don't know what the cloud market dynamics are going to look like, and they think it could be a big market. They said yeah, they, they cited some obscure estimate, which no one has any clue. Any idea what the size of the cloud market is going to be in five years, two years, ten years? You pick it. Like no one, no one has any idea. And they said some random estimate said it might be worth eleven billion dollars, which is trivial on, in its own right relative to the gaming market overall. Yeah, it would still, it would still be a small part. I mean, it'd be a few percentage points, but it'd be a small part. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me. It shows that, in the words of the little succession reference, the CMA and the FTC are not serious people. They're not, they seem very biased against big tech, which I guess, you know, as an investor, we're trying to, we're, we're looking at that more from uh, just an industry covering the industry. But from an investor perspective, I think this is the big concern we had is that 
these companies do have a vendetta against, or excuse me, these regulators do have a vendetta against big tech. Now, I want to get to the next question is what do you think the likely scenarios are from here? Because I, you mentioned that they're going to appeal the deal. I think that was a little bit of talk from Activision because they have to say that, right? And I think once they're, um, it's in July, their deadline for getting the $3 billion termination fee hits, I think they're going to want to walk if they see this is going to take multiple years to close. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um I guess I don't know. I would like to see them appeal the deal. Um, not if it's going to take multiple years to close. And maybe that was the goal Thank of regulators. You. Maybe that's what regulators were hoping for was let's just make this an absolute slog to get through. Um, it's disappointing from, I think, not only an investing perspective, but also, I mean, gamers were frustrated by this too. This would have absolutely helped. I think having... Call of Duty under the Microsoft umbrella, under the Xbox umbrella, um, there could have been a lot of ways for them to make that game more fun, more accessible. If cloud does work out, it it could have been, I don't know, that yeah. much more seamless to have COD on Xbox, whatever the cloud gaming version is. So um, I think gamers were upset. I just find it I don't know. I bet the third-party publishers were upset too because PlayStation is a lot more anti-competitive to the third-party publishers, where they they really go for these exclusive titles that um, the regulators were worried about. Anyways, there was some there's some interesting data out there that uh, third-party titles do not do as well on PlayStation versus Xbox, and PlayStation does have a growing part of that market. There's a nice good comment here from Rod saying the cloud gaming platform from Google was shut down about three months ago. Not a great indicator for the cloud market. Yeah, it's, it's not even a working technology yet. Google Stadia didn't work at all. And there's a reason for that. It's just not ready. So it's 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 almost like blocking a acquisition for social media in 2002. Yeah. And the uh, I, I guess my other thought here is what would... And I know this probably won't happen, but what if Microsoft said or Activision said, all right, we'll go ahead without the UK market? Yeah, I think maybe they would do that if Microsoft didn't have all these other business lines because UK is probably not that big of a, you know, and maybe it's like 5% of their revenue. I know it's an important market for them, especially for the console market, but they would have to forego, Microsoft would have to forego Azure, Office 365, and all that stuff. So I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze in that regard, but it would be an interesting tactic. Maybe they could threaten it. Maybe they could threaten that and say, look, we're going to cancel Microsoft Office and ruin your economy by by taking away Excel. But you don't think they could say, like, hey, uh, I mean, yeah, that (laughs) then it would maybe. That would make them look pretty bad. Maybe that would prove that regulators are needed to step in. But uh, (laughs) the. They say like, okay, we're just not gonna we're not gonna serve Xbox customers there, because what is it four percent probably maybe less of like Activision's revenue. So obviously they would be paying a little bit more. I, I don't know how much they, they don't say in their filings what the UK accounts for, but I'm pretty sure the PlayStation is a huge is the leader over there by um, a long shot. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Is that on the table? Probably not, but I kind of yeah. wish it was because then all the gamers in the UK would be like, yo, just pass it. Like, let it go. We want COD. 
Yeah, and and again, the other publishers, which is what they're they're trying to um, say that they're helping out here. Like the other publishers don't want Steam to get more powerful. They don't want PlayStation get, to get more powerful. Powerful, and they do not want Google and Apple to get more powerful. Which in reality, they just need, there just needs to be another app store that hops into play for the mobile department, so they don't take that fat take rate without building a dedicated oh. system. Because again, the take rate, you know, like Steam takes a big take rate or PlayStation takes a big take rate, but that's because they have the dedicated hardware for gaming. It's more of a collaborative process. But again, I'm going down a different tangent. Some you have something else to add? And I bet like if, if they and I'm not even sure this is how like logistically it could work, but if they said like, okay, we're we're gonna take Xbox Xbox services out of the UK, I bet EA would say, like, no, no, please, no, like let us they'd be lobbying for the deal to go through and for Xbox to stay in the UK. Cause EA has, I think a huge, maybe not as big as the U S market, but a big chunk of their FIFA revenue, especially, which is their. And racing, racing, racing is huge in the UK and they're the biggest racing uh, game company. Yeah. I mean, they would, I'm sure they would be incredibly frustrated by it too. So I don't know, just, I think I side with Microsoft putting pressure or Activision putting pressure on, on the UK. I think it's kind of, and when you look through the report of like why they chose not to do it, it is kind of laughable because it's it's very clear they don't understand the market. And cloud as a percentage of gaming overall is less than one percent. How can that be a monopoly? Like how could that be your concern? That maybe one <laughs> yeah. day maybe one day it is worth two percent of the overall gaming market. Yeah, it does. It doesn't make much sense. I did see, and they, you know, they had all the people from Microsoft and Activision doing a blitz for the media. So I believe it was on CNBC. It was Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision Blizzard, and I didn't catch this part, but I saw someone tweet a quote. So don't. This isn't a direct quote, but they're basically saying that yesterday or this week, the CMA met with the FTC. So I think the FTC convinced them to stick with their on their side and and block the deal, but it's just disappointing because I think it this this means a less healthy gaming market going forward. And I want just as an investor and, and following this industry, it's so fascinating. I want a healthier gaming market where the platforms don't, um, you know, there's a there's a better there's more competition among the platform level and a platform I mean either the console platforms, the PC platforms, or the mobile platforms, or I guess the cloud platforms. Um, where without this deal, I think there's less competition because there are inherent competitive advantages and winner take all scenarios here. And yeah, I just look. And I think acquisitions have benefited gamers over the last 20 years. Uh, EA produces such better games because it's that much bigger and is able to have the resources to invest in it. Game pro. It's not like, it's not like there's any monopoly here. That's just gouging consumers consoles have been similar prices for decades game prices haven't changed for decades they're actually down a lot if you, in real terms i yeah. think i saw someone do the math that they should be around 110 bucks per game now and most of them are actually going a lot of them are going towards free yeah i mean yeah i think halo fans might be upset recently because of the microsoft acquired them but in general yes the acquisitions haven't really hurt the market because that the industry is interesting where a, uh, there's so many studios starting up 
And it's all about whether you you come up with a good game or a lasting franchise. And you can't just acquire your way to success. You're acquiring skilled people. You're acquiring maybe some brands, but it does not guarantee at all that you'll have success because, I mean, for one, Xbox really hasn't succeeded with their first-party strategy outside of Minecraft. No, and for the people that... And I'm pretty sure they acquired Minecraft initially. That's what I'm saying. For first yeah. party, like, yeah. Yeah, they acquired um, them, but like, it's a first party game for them now. And the, for the people that are like, oh, no, I want as many indie studios as possible. It's so difficult to survive as an individual studio in the gaming world because you're going to have, even if you have a hit, you're going to have flops. And those flops, if you're in a big company, aren't the end of the world because you have the resources to weather it and then produce a new game. But if you're an individual studio and you have those flops, it, it could be the end of the franchise, end of the enterprise. So Yeah. And the last thing to close on that is that the data that I was trying to reference earlier, but I can't really remember the exact stuff, is that the indie studios with Sony on PlayStation do not do nearly as well. And they kind of target their own exclusive titles. So you want more competition among the platforms for these third-party titles, for these indie games, because if it's all Sony or if it's all Steam, yeah, Steam doesn't really produce their own games, so I guess it would be fine. But within Sony, specifically on the console market, they you don't want that... How am I trying to say it? You want more platforms out there, or as many as possible, that are succeeding, because right now, Xbox, yeah, can offer it, but it's not nearly as big of a portion as for revenue for these third-party titles as Sony or Steam or the mobile platforms. And yeah, just, it doesn't make sense in general, but the other, you want to go to the next tech to- topic or you have something to final final here? Nah, well, I guess we can leave it. I mean, the UK, congrats. You've, you've now blocked the Activision deal and you blocked uh, Facebook from buying Giphy. <laughs> Thanks for... Thanks for saving the tech. That's world. why I think. That's why I think that uh, you know, R.I.P. Logan Rice. The the when he said, "I love you, but you're not serious people." That's got to be. Yeah. So uh, good. All right, Spotify had earnings. Thoughts? Um, yeah, pretty much as expected on earnings side because they said it would be bad, and it was really good on the user side. But yeah. it's rest it's rest of the world. So you get it almost from a monetization perspective, just because these markets have lower GDP per capita, you gotta maybe divide them by two for a lot of those. So I don't know if it's that impressive, but it's it's not a bad thing that they're getting usage uh in a lot of these places. And yeah, it, it was really as expected. I did like how they talked about reducing dumb podcast exclusive contracts, which I think means the old celebrity contracts that they signed that didn't really amount to much where that old, uh, the, the, the prior head of content, I forget her name, got fired for that. It seemed like, so that seems better because the exclusive strategy seems smart. And then it's just really the rest of the year watching for gross margin expansion on, because they said this is the year it's finally going to happen. And we'll see. So yeah, yeah. They, I think ad supported was a little disappointing, but they said it was going to be light, and yeah, you just need that to accelerate because they have the fixed cost for the advertising spend for a lot of that, and they need to grow that. So any, anything you saw that was insightful, but I, I thought it was really, really as 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 everyone kind of as I thought it would be, right? No, no big surprises here. Yeah, and it kind of surprises me that stock still trades on user growth, like. They beat users and stock jumped like nine percent. Well, well, subs was pretty impressive. I know, but like that's just never been 
over the last two years, I would say that has not been a sticking point for me as an investor. Like I'm not concerned that it's a good product and it's going to attract more subs over time. I'm concerned that, you know, what are the economics going to look like? What are the margins going to look like for this business? And yet the stock really kind of still trades on, on that, those user numbers, which I mean, whatever, half a, half a billion subscribers or users. I think that's obviously very impressive, but um, it's uh, the gross margins are still an issue. And I did find it a little interesting that they were kind of vague with why their gross margins, they were like other cost of revenue increased. And someone asked on the call, like, why? And they're like, well, uh, you know, cloud computing costs or something like that. I was just like, well, that's not, yeah, that's semi-concerning, but. Yeah, I think it's just with the user growth in a lot of these uh, rest of the world markets, which for them is everywhere that's not Latin America, North America, or Europe. If it's growing quicker, that cost is going to grow and they're not going to make as much money off of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I hated some of the questions in that Slido. They always I put in, I put in, I put in like five questions that all basically said, how are you assuring that you're not hiring too many people again? But they didn't like it. <laughs> they didn't want to ask. They're not taking those. <laughs> I think yeah. I'll bet they have people. Oh, yeah. 100%. I bet well, Spotify has people it, on the yeah. call like, they're like, okay, let's get 10 people to like that question. Or well, they can ask whatever they let's want. Avoid, yeah, yeah, they're avoiding some of the tougher ones. Um, uh, I, I thought that, yeah, it was kind of a mixed bag. Hey, at least there's... they didn't. At least, at least they didn't just say AI over and over and over again. They did yeah, talk about what it. What you think of the Google? Was, uh, yeah, almost the same thing. Where it's just expenses. Everything looked fine to me. the The YouTube isn't really a concern because they highlighted that they're growing premium. So as if advertising revenue is kind of stagnating for the time being, it's not that big of a deal if their premium subscribers are growing so much because that's where the revenue is going. But cloud is great. And search is fine. Yeah, seems. And then they just, as, it seems was, like, well, it's funny. They were like, they're like, yep, we just moved some numbers around and we're profitable now. Well, like, no, uh, oh, oh, for the, the, the servers, the server yeah, stuff. The de- server depreciation. Like, yeah. Right, well. I'll, I'll, to be fair, all the companies have been doing this. So I think it, they're showing that it's like, it, no, it the tech's improving for sure, but. I guess, or it's lasting longer it, than I thought. Yeah. Um, kind of funny that that's all it took was a little useful life uh, extension and boom, where gap is prof or cloud is profitable by a significant margin. I guess that goes to show how much of the expenses related to cloud infrastructure are um, the the hardware, the chips, the upfront, stuff like the that. Upfront, the upfront costs. A lot of, yeah, a lot of upfront costs, less maintenance costs. And yeah, it's a lot of, you know, look at Amazon's capital expenditures chart. And yeah, you can see that. But that is, you know, they had to throw up a lot of capital up front. So free cash flow is going to be, you know, the faster the cloud grows. I think we saw this with Amazon. The worse cash flow looks in the near term. But depending on how strong you think the moats are, you know, it can help over the long term with durable cash flow generation. I know. Part of me was like, I looked at Spotify's and they're like, yeah, our cloud, our cloud costs uh, jumped more than we were expecting or something like that. 
And I was like, well, you know, that sucks, but I'm a Google shareholder and maybe GCP revenue will be better. So yeah, no, and it was. And yeah. the yeah, that is one of their biggest customers, but obviously not just them moving the needle. But back to the this uh, honestly with Spotify, if their cloud costs are going up, that you that means that their usage is going up from their consumers, like hours spent on the platform. And they did highlight that that hours spent per user is going up, which in the long like that's fantastic news. I thought all their user KPIs were great. They said DAU to MAU was better, users were better, podcast mix was better. I mean in the long run, it's not even users that is the most important. It's consumption on the platform, especially if they're going to be advertising driven, which TBD, if they can actually execute on that. Uh, but yeah, okay. but on, on Google, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was a mixed bag. Um, okay, we have like 15 minutes. There's been a ton of earnings. So I'm thinking we do, and I, I don't know which which of them you've looked at, but just a quick fire thoughts. Let's start with Meta. Uh a little underwhelmed versus the stock price reaction. So I think I, if I was deciding how much the stock should be up, I would have maybe set a couple percentage points. I think the reality lab spend, people just forgot about it, but it's no different than they, they said it would be. But but Zuckerberg and their executive team seems to be the only one serious about fixing the overhiring problem in a real way instead of just talking about it. So Dropbox. Well, Big tech. <laughs> oh, They're medium uh, tech. They are medium tech. If they do the buyback enough, they will be small cap tech. And uh, apparently the stock price stays at $20 forever. The, yeah, I think the usage stuff with Meta seems fine. It's not blowing it out of the water because if you look at a lot of these emerging markets, Instagram and, and WhatsApp are dominating, but I think it's masking, well, I don't know. Facebook seems to be doing fine, but I don't think the usage on there is, you know, is probably stagnating in a few markets. But again, you know, that has never actually materialized and hurt the business. It seems it seems like fine, but I just wonder, can they really jump ARPUs um, that much across all, all their apps? I'm just not sure. Uh, but again, the 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 I think their stock is doing the best because of the. Um, right sizing the cost structure to use the consultant term. They're actually doing that with wh- how how many people did they lay off? Like twenty something thousand versus more, I think. Twenty, maybe, maybe a little over twenty k versus what like an eighty k employee count. So very very sizable versus their uh, prior one. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I thought the same thing. I, I thought the quarter was okay, but. Maybe it's just the expectations were so low coming into this year. Um, it's yeah. like the size of the social media businesses continues to blow my mind. The fact that they're still growing at 3 billion daily active people. Um, but I, I imagine a lot of that's still from WhatsApp. And I don't know. I think there might be, they, I mean, they're saying that like maybe reels monetization could be on par with feed and search and, or not search uh, feed and the other properties. But I wonder if it's like structurally different. I wonder if it's, and, and they said it's like a very different feed concept or it's a very different like advertising concept. When I think about like TikTok or Snapchat, which is maybe what it feels more like feels like it would just be a lower 
if I'm if I'm advertising there, I'd probably pay less for it. Yeah, I guess it yeah, depends on the targeting capabilities, but yeah, I don't know how much that matters, but I think you could be right. I just don't. Yeah, how 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 strong is the growth going to be? I, I just also part of, me reality... thinks, part of me thinks it's great, but yeah, and also Reality Labs looks worse and worse. The revenue is. T- nothing it's actually getting worse i think and then their other category which again down doesn't 50%. really matter yeah and their reality labs revenue is down 50 percent year over year i'm pretty sure yeah and now that stuff's probably lumpy because it has to do with like hardware launches but i also, still okay like i'd say six months ago we said that reality labs is going to be a flop and that this is not something that consumers are asking for. Like there's been no sign that this is going the right direction. At least not yeah. from what I've seen. Yeah. And we sound like super bearish on meta. I'm really not, but I just don't know how like the risk reward versus owning them versus Google or Amazon. And I guess really that's, we own Google or Amazon compared to them at, at the, at these prices. I think it just makes a bunch more sense, especially here. Here's what's interesting. The, the, a lot of the costs for the CapEx have been AI, right? Or AI related investments. That's going to flow through the income statement. And if that's not a one-time thing and that's a permanent upspend, they are going to have to, you know, it's going to hurt their margins over the long term unless the monetization is that much better. And they don't have a cloud infrastructure division to outsource the, you know, to sell those costs and capabilities to other people, which is why I just like, and we'll talk about they have all the negatives of cloud. They, yeah, they have exactly. all the costs of cloud and none of the revenue. Yeah, exactly. Or they don't, yeah, they don't get to, ben- to have the benefits. We're going to talk about cloud next week because as we're recording this, it's one hour before the Amazon earnings. So want to get that context, but I do think in general, I, I don't know why, Look, Meta could totally work from here. It could double again over the next five years. I would not be surprised, but I don't know why people like them more than any of the cloud companies because I just think that is just so much more rock solid, especially with this this AI boom. But I, Meta, I mean, I do, an, it's an enigma for me. It's it's an enigma for me. I can't get a grasp on it. No, I'm so impressed by the family of apps. The like the social media properties and their durability has like uh, impressed impressed me a lot. And there, uh, there was a point when I was saying that Instagram was going to go the way of Facebook and kind of lose its um, relevance with younger people. That just hasn't happened. It's still, it I seemed mean, to, it plateaued so and now it's, it plateaued and now it's, it's, it's gotten a little bit of its mojo back. I I'm reading it right. I, I don't use it, but that's kind of what I read into it. Is that true? You think? Yeah. I, be, I believe reels there, there was a point when TikTok was stealing a lot of share, but uh, reels just basically replicated it and stole that share back it seems like based on tiktok's engagement data so um yeah i I, i'm really impressed by the social media businesses but it's like everyone just forgot that reality labs is a huge cash suck um anyway all right uh other ones did you read roku's report glanced at it uh yeah they gotta they gotta manage those operating expenses because again Usage looks great. Uh, market share looks great. Can't, I don't know what happens with them, what they're, how they, they, they should be able to earn a good ad spread, whether it's their first party stuff with their own channel or the take rate on other stuff. I just don't, why is it not showing up in the earnings? 
why is there why are their expenses too high? Are they investing in a lot of dumb stuff or what's going on? Like what if you kind of I think they might be. I think some of the Roku channel. You're saying the Weird Al Yankovic movie didn't blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. The content's been buying up the Quibi stuff that was just totally useless. And well, were they working on smart speakers and smart lights? Yeah, that R and D might be a little bit of a waste. I. They're also manufacturing their own TVs now. Yeah, that could be cost savings though, or the long run. Essentially, yeah, it's kind of hard to say. Um, but I just don't get it. it. Should have very these should have the advertising and uh, platform stuff where they earn a little bit of fee on whatever you know through the distribution, like any other platform. They, they the layoffs very high margins. Very high. Margins. Yeah, they, yeah, I agree. It's like there's this the business model. If you just described it to me without giving me any of the numbers, I would think like, wow, that's got to be really profitable. But it's just not showing up. And I wonder if some of that has to do with the negotiating leverage or the contracts between the big streaming providers, Netflix, YouTube, what else? Disney, but I think they get a lot of revenue from Disney. Um, maybe there just aren't very favorable contracts with them. Um, the other part, yeah, I don't think their layoffs trickled through the income statement this quarter yet, so they haven't seen that. So maybe losses look worse than expected. But yeah, this should be a way more profitable business than it is, like plain and simple. Yeah, let me. Yeah, let me look, let me throw up the stratosphere chart to see if I can. I want to. I want to look at it and see what their operating income has looked like because it just hasn't improved, and they really they over earned during twenty twenty one or grew quicker, and the, there was a bit of the advertising bubble, but. They haven't shown any ability to fix that. Let's go quarterly. What about MasterCard? Did you look at their earnings? Not yet. I looked at Visa, but pretty yeah. dang good business. Yeah, I want to talk about. Let me after I share this little chart for. Let me describe it. So if we look at Roku pre-COVID, they were losing a little bit of money each year as they're trying to scale the business. I guess not a big issue. During COVID, for the first few quarters, they started. Printing some solid operating profits, $65 million in March, uh, or excuse me, December 2020, uh, $76 million in March 2021. But as kind of the COVID bubble popped in 2022, we've seen increasing operating losses. And it looks like at the end of 2022, we saw $250 million operating income loss. Maybe some of that was one-time charges, kind of looking at the chart. And they haven't shown the ability to quickly right-size their cost structure. I guess, drink, I said that again. But and the same thing happened in Q1. So, I uh, how are they going to fix these these earnings? But yeah, we'll see. But here's here's some uh, on the card networks. I want to show you this, and again, I'll describe it to people. But I thought it was super interesting. We did talk about on prior shows about the excess savings chart, right? Stuff like that, and how we we're you're we wondering about when how much was really left on consumer balance sheets. So it looks like someone actually ran the math. And I'll share it with uh, with you here. Let me click on that. Oh. Okay. Can you see that? Yeah, okay. I can. They're trying to recommend me that viral Tucker Carlson tweet. Can't escape it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone ignore that if you're watching. But here, here's the chart. I'll describe it. Pretty easy to see. So starting in COVID, because of the dynamics of the pandemic, and everyone all knows that at that point, there was huge cumulative excess savings in uh, just from consumers, and it went from basically zero to two trillion dollars 
And then, you know, the stimmies help with that. It flatlined. And now at, in 2022, they've been drawing that down. And now we're at about $1 billion left of cumulative excess savings. And according to this chart from to Bank of America, say they drew down about a trillion dollars of excess savings in 2022. And that equates to a 6% boost in expenditures. But here's the interesting note. And I'm going to go to the next slide. All right. Twitter can't load anymore. This one is a bit complicated, but I'll just describe it. Uh, what he said here is the above graph shows that the bottom 80% of households have already burned off the excess savings they accumulated in 20 and 2021. This is why credit card debt has expanded rapidly. See below, credit card debt is growing. So my thought here is that, and maybe you agree, I'm a bit nervous about the growth rates of the payment networks and the credit card companies right now, specifically American Express. I want to see this excess savings get spent off and see how whether that was an how big of a catalyst that was to growth. And I wonder. Specifically Amex, huh? Well, Amex, Visa, I said the car networks, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, I guess those are really the only ones. And then. um, I know, but I I mean, looking at the chart, I would think that the people with more that still have the capability to spend are the Amex customers. Yeah. For how long though? I mean, they're the wealthiest. It looks like. Yeah, but the trillion dollars in savings that's left is them. That's moving downwards, and eventually that gets spent off, right? And and you know how much of that was a one-time boost, and how much of that can be normalized because incomes aren't growing to to compensate with this. Yeah, I just I worry mean, about that. It, things might be fine, but I just worry about that with these card networks that print this growth, and people go, "I'd buy this at thirty times earnings because it grows ten percent a year forever." Eh, maybe not. Yeah, it might be might just be tied to. At this point, I think MasterCard and Visa are basically just consumer spending plus 5%. If, maybe, if, if. maybe, maybe. Yeah, I, somewhere around those lines. I know you said 5%, you didn't mean exactly 5%, but like a plus, little bit higher. Plus a little something, yeah. Yeah. They're also, they're also doing things to, I mean, at this point, yes, the, the bulk of the business is basically like global spending, but they're also doing stuff to... Like structurally grow, they're still adding merchant locations. I think they just crossed a hundred million. Um, the the total cards in force is is still up significantly. It's at three point two billion. I think it was at like two point six a year ago. So, mm-hmm. and they're still uh, they're still growing aside from just overall spending on their cards. Yeah, I just wonder how fast though. I have no doubt these companies are going to grow over time and they are inflation resilient, but. Are they growing faster than normal than they would be, you know, right now? Just as this, this excess savings, I mean, it's going to get spent off over the next few quarters. So we'll know the question for sure, I guess, a year from now. But yeah. Okay, we got two minutes. Last question. Were there any earnings that stood out to you this quarter? Uh, yeah, I've just been looking at outside of our own portfolio. I just look at the big ones. And I guess Chipotle was pretty strong, strong margins. Uh, maybe hindsight, we, people should have been able to see that because of food inflation coming down and them still raising their prices consistently. But yeah, I mean, they, they keep knocking out of the park. I worry about, we've talked about it, uh, worrying about, uh, what what would you call it? Food quality going down. 
but maybe that shouldn't have been a bulk case because Americans seem to like bad food. So uh, you just, have, that, you just I, have a more advanced palate. No, we. Uh, what do the What do the Europeans always talk to us about when we talk to them about Hershey's and stuff like that? Uh, we seem to have disgusting. The, yeah, yeah. So maybe the food quality going down was a good thing, and not being as fresh anymore was a good thing for growth. But besides that, that's not really impactful anymore. I, yeah, I mean, they impressed me with their margins. I wonder if they can sustain 15% plus. What do you think? Yeah, I think they can. I mean, I still go on a regular basis and I don't really check the price that much as long as it's around like 10 to 12 bucks. I'm happy. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing where you're like, whoa, this is a huge, yeah. Nothing. If it's still almost you know, I mean, not, it's nowhere, still, clo- nowhere close to an expensive dinner or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's still a good alternative relative to like sitting down somewhere and you get the same amount of food and it's higher quality than fast food. So yeah. And no one still seems st- to want to, yeah, no, uh, no the, one's replicating the, it either, I guess. I mean, not- well, Qdoba is owned by, I think some Jack in the box and they totally botched it, but yeah. Yeah. There, there just isn't that many healthy, like convenient locations. For food. Yeah. yeah. I would. Yeah. And the percentage of like sweet for me green. personally, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch out sweet green. <laughs> Watch out with those negative with the that income statement. I mean, my God. But yeah, and the percentage of people the percentage of uh food expenditures that are going to restaurants continues to rise. I would argue that that, you know, maybe that is a bit of a bull market phenomenon because it's so much more expensive, but the long term trend of that is undeniable. All right. All right. It's time. That's going to do it. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for the few who joined us on the questions here. Really appreciate it. These go live every Thursday. You can watch the replays on YouTube or Spotify or listen when they come out on your favorite podcast player of choice. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital and clients may hold positions, excuse me, discussed in this podcast. Thank you everyone again for tuning in. And we'll see you next week.